0: Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as we worship and fellowship together. To find out more about Waterbrook, go to www.waterbrook.church. Can I invite you to take your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13? Hebrews chapter 13. We're getting near to the end of our study of this this book, a precious book in the uh, New Testament. Often when I talk to people about their favorite books of the Bible, it's either Romans or the Gospel of John, but for many it's Hebrews. And the reason why Hebrews is a favorite book for many people is that it is so centrally focused on exalting Jesus as the center and supreme of all our worship and all our hopes. And that uh, we need to be reminded in the letter of Hebrews who Jesus is. At the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1, We're told that at the right hand of the Father now sits the exalted Jesus Christ. And so even that image, which carries all the way through the book of Hebrews, needs to be functionally central in your life, not just theologically affirmed, but functionally central. So would you take a moment this morning and remind yourself that at the right hand of the Father is your Savior? who has been appointed by God to intercede for you right now. Isn't that a marvelous thought? That whatever is happening in your life and however unaware of all your struggles or challenges that the people around you may be, he is not unaware. He cannot be indifferent. Our best preaching, singing, praying, and reading today will not begin to plumb the depths of his unfailing love for you in the gospel. Those are the facts of the Bible that feed the feelings of our heart, not the other way around. These are the truths and the realities of the gospel that need to minister to us. I want to remind you that as we have read through Hebrews, it wasn't written to a church in easy times. It was written to a church at profoundly difficult times, probably under the reign of Nero, probably at a time when the persecution of the church had begun to expand and the thunder of the news of the day was that the Christians would pay the price, of his hostility, and the scattering had taken place and the imprisonments had taken place and the possibility of death was now on the horizon. And amongst a people that are not profoundly different than you and I, but very much like you and I, we tremble. We become anxious. We worry about What life will hold for us. And in the middle of all of that, these people... Hebrews, I believe, is a sermon. A sermon is being proclaimed to them that Jesus reigns, not evil. That Christ is above Nero. That all of what we struggle with ultimately comes under the purview and the providence and the power of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All of these things are under the reigning Jesus and so we are to hear this letter and adjust our expectations and address our anxieties and to move forward with confidence in the ministry of the gospel for the letter to the Hebrews is written not to make us passive but to make us open to make us public with our faith to make us comfortable with the liberty that he's provided, whether or not we enjoy those liberties anymore. Politically, socially, whether or not those freedoms are afforded to us. So I want you to read Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 with me. In light of this, verse 18 and understand that the writer to the Hebrews is writing to these believers to encourage them to stand firm together as a people and to remember that there are those who are paying the price, most likely to pay the price, which are their spiritual leaders, and to remind them not, not to withdraw and forget about one another, not to scatter under persecution, but to pull together and to pray together so that all, especially those who may pay the highest price, would stay firm and faithful, no matter what the cost. Listen to Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Do you hear hear that line? I want you to pause and linger over that line. It's not going to help you if your leaders aren't helped. Those who have been charged for the care of your soul falter. The consequences will be felt. Those who are called to give grace to you so that you might persevere need you to give grace to them. That makes sense? We are in this together, and in order to get grace, we must give grace. In order to be encouraged, we must be encouraging. In order to be strong, we must strengthen those who strengthen us in the gospel. Verse 18 Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Do you hear what's being said here? This is probably written by someone who's suffering and being accused. I urge you the more earnestly to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. I love this about this letter, as you're making your way through the letter, that the, the, the writer leaves comments about primarily about himself to the very end. So he gets to the conclusion. He doesn't say a whole lot, but he's encouraging them to encourage each other. He's strengthening them to focus on Jesus, not himself. It's not all about the leaders, but as he comes to the end of the letter, he's being honest in the, in the situations and saying, we desperately need your help. We need to be encouraged, and, and we're doing what's right. Our consciences are clear, and even though our consciences are clear, that doesn't mean our, our pathway is easy. We expect to be released, but we need you to remember, to encourage, and to give grace. So I do want you to think for a moment of an illustration. Imagine that it's November of 1950, and the uh, U.S. and uh, forces are making their way United Nations, force or whatever the organized, wasn't just under U.S. oversight. But they're making their way up into what we would call North Korea. And they are having an ad- advance. They're making their way, pushing back the forces. And they're pretty sure that the victory is over and that they've the battle is over and the victory is won. And as they're making their way up to the north part, over towards the Chinese border and pushing back the Koreans... A change of policy takes place. An announcement happens about policy. The Chinese have begun to amass on the border to protect the Koreans, but there's a debate. Will they come across the border or will they not? And the assumption is they probably won't. Well, they do. And suddenly, under extreme pressure, there's a moving back, a withdrawing, a retreating of soldiers. They're, They're pulling back as As the Chinese, and as this withdrawal takes place back towards the south, some of the soldiers and their units become isolated from one another. They've got orders to get back, but they don't all get back. And in the middle of that, on the kind of the northeast side of where everybody was called to do, there's one unit that gets surrounded and captured. And that's really the last for a long time you'll hear of that unit. And uh, there's some discussion of where they end up. The Chinese said they ended up in a prisoner of war camp called Camp One. They called Camp One history. And the uh, testimonies later of American soldiers was that they ended up in Camp Five. In that camp was Diana's uncle. And so it's amazing to me what the American military will do for their soldiers, so they're not forgotten, or never left behind. And so they gave me the CD of the stories of the military records of how long they'd been tracking what happened to him, where he disappeared, where they thought he was, who he was. Anyway, they ended up with several remains of unidentified soldiers being taken, given to the Chi- by the Chinese. And as best as they could ascertain was that he died of malnutrition or something like that and illness in Camp 5, of prisoner of war camp in, under the Chinese in uh, June or July of 1951. And so here we are. (laughs) How much later? Like next year will be 70 years. A year from this month will be 70 years since he was captured. And yesterday, this family from our church is down in Red Wing as they finally identified through DNA. And I've seen the The dental records they were trying to do and the bone records, they've got all of the records there where they finally narrowed it down. It was actually another family. There was kind of five soldiers that they had taken back, and one of the families wanted to identify their missing MIA family member, and it was in searching for their family member that Diana's uncle pops up on the radar. Diana had her DNA tested, they have DNA from her brother, from her mom, and they just identified him. And I just think, man, this is this is unusual. This is this country's unusual. The degree I mean, you just see the paperwork, how determined we are not to forget. How determined we are to remember those who have sacrificed and paid the price. And as we read through the Bible, it provides this great illustration of what we're studying because what's happening in Hebrews is an exhortation at the end. Do not neglect to care for and encourage those who are fighting for your liberty in the gospel. Do not neglect it. Remember them. Be engaged and care for them. I put a quote up here on what leadership looks like for Christians, and this is not just for me and and those who are overseers, but these are for all of us who are called to shepherd and to care for the spiritual welfare of our family members. David Mathis writes, Mark this, husbands and dads, pastors and presidents, the very essence and heart of leadership is taking initiative we would otherwise wouldn't take and making sacrifices we otherwise wouldn't make to guide our people somewhere good they otherwise wouldn't have gone. That's a good definition of military efforts, Right? You got people going to where they wouldn't go, doing what they would never want to do so that we wouldn't have to do it to get us into places that we might not fight for. Isn't that what Christ has done for us in the gospel? And the reality is for spiritual leaders, just like soldiers, often soldiers when they get out on the, on the battlefront realize that they're over their heads. Nobody knows what they're signing up for until so they get in. And, 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 you, you, and then we have many, many faithful military soldiers who have come back with PTSD, dealing with the consequences of it. And that happens in ministry as well. Those who have gone out to serve and they get in. And their whole goal, the goal of the gospel is to get people to live in the mission of the gospel. And, to, and you know, that's really one of the challenges is As a pastor because as a pastor my goal is not to get you to live a comfortable American life. We have a comfortable American not American, godly heavenly life coming to us one day when we will rest finally. Our goal is to be in mission and to be engaged and to go out and so we're calling to help people to be strengthened and healed in the gospel because there are tons of people wounded suffering PTSD so last night I'm in this store last evening and talking to a a woman, I walk up and I'm, she's handing out Christmas cookies. She's selling cookies. She'll be at the Arboretum in a few weeks selling these cookies. And so we're in this arts and crafts store and this lady's handing out cookies. And I hear her say to somebody else the language that, you know, Canadians can hear. She didn't say A, but I picked up on it. And she said, well, I, a long time ago I lived in Canada. So I sidled up beside her and I said, where in Canada did you live? Because we all know each other. And, and she said to me, uh, where she lived, and so I began to name all the people that I knew that lived in that community where she was. She's been here in Brooklyn Park for thirty years or something like that, or forty years. I named people that I knew, and then I said one last name, and she paused, and then she said to me, the the the, the first name, and I said, "That's exactly who I know," and she said, "I was engaged to that guy." <laughs> You know, it's a small world. And then she said, of course, the question, how do you know him? And I said, I was his pastor. And she goes, what church? And I said, here or there? <laughs> and she, then she said these words to me. She said, I love the Lord with all my heart, but I have not been in the church for a long, long time. And so we talked a little bit. About that. And I told her what I tell you. I said, Well, one of our missions in our church in Victoria, Minnesota, is to minister to the refugees from the American dream. Now, I say that because I believe that under all the idealism of the culture around us is the common experience of brokenness. People broken in their families. People broken and disappointed about their dreams. People have chased the wind and, sowed the, and reaped the whirlwind. And so as we're ministering to people who are trying to make it in this world, there's all kinds of woundedness, and there's a long list of people who have identified with Christianity in the church and so on who would not darken the doors of a church because of the brokenness and the woundedness. And we're licking our wounds, right? Recovering under the brokenness, going towards the goal when you'll make all things new. And as we say that, one of the things we have to be reminded of is that this is not just for the person in the pew. This is the guy in the pulpit. We are broken people made whole by a beautiful Savior. We need each other. This last year, there's been a re- couple of repeated. This last September, one of the me- large mega churches, Har- a Harvest Christian Church in uh, Riverside, California, their 30-year-old pastor committed suicide. It's a mega church, 15 thousand people in their church shocking the news the community but shocking all of america it was all over the news it was in time magazine it was in other stories about what had happened there and what often happens to people say how do you get there and my question often is how do you not get there right we're fragile we're fearfully wonderfully complex human beings and what the writer is saying to the end is we've got to put away the superhero idea of super spiritualized idea of people and realize we are all in need of Jesus. And so we need to help one another as we seek to run the race and finish the race. And that includes the guy who preaches Hebrews and writes the letter to the Hebrews. And so here's a couple of thoughts I want to say to you. Number one is what you need in this letter he's saying here is for your leaders to be hopeful and your leaders to be joyful or as he says at the end of verse 17. It's no advantage to you to have a leader who is down, discouraged, hopeless, and in despair, right? You guys going to come back next week? If I'm persistently Johnny Downer? would be of no advantage to you. But the question is, how do we give grace to those who give grace to us? That's not just me. That's for all of us who are ministering in a responsibility of leadership. How do we give gospel grace? How do we give encouragement for those who are sacrificing for our eternity? And I'm going to walk us through a couple things in this text this morning that I hope. Are helpful. So here's the first thing I want us to see. We need to foster a responsiveness to leadership by feeling the weightiness of leadership. Can you just think about that for a moment? Because notice what he says in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. So the idea here is that the leaders are called to encourage you to finish the race, to encourage you in standing firm and not shrinking back, to being biblically faithful and being courageous, And being out there. They're called to give you grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. To lift high Jesus and then to say at the end of worship, okay folks, we're going as broken people to a broken world, right? So they're called to give that kind of grace and to send us out. But as you see this, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them, respond to them, for they are doing what? Keeping watch, overseeing your souls as those who will what give an account you know um, that's one of the things that complicates brokenness for spiritual leaders like Jared Wilson who at the age of 30 committed suicide this last September what complicates it is not only you're broken and you're trusting in Christ but you're bringing in other people's brokenness and you're face to face with other people's struggles you know, they used to have all kinds of stats on on suicide rates amongst professionals. We have a lot of dentists in our family, and uh, so we had that conversation because dentists, for a long time, had one of the highest suicide rates. And maybe because you inflict pain and in it's hard, and nobody likes you, or something. I don't know. We joke about that, you know. But you're always glad to have a dentist in the family most of the time. You know, have somebody around, but there's different things when you're dealing with pain on the front lines. You know, the 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 cost for families and marriages for who, people who are frontline workers on like. Uh, paramedics and firefighters and police officers you see what it does to their inability to come home and re-engage deeply and painfully with other people and families it, you can empathize with all of that and so what the writers to the to the Hebrews is saying to them, the way we are to be responsive to those who are leading in the way that God calls us to in the gospel is to feel the weight. The way that you're going to be responsive is not just to legally pull yourself up and say, I'll do whatever he says. That's not what he's saying there. What he's saying to them is feel the weight of their responsibility. They're going to give an account to God for you. That's what keeps you up at night. When you're sitting in a counseling room and and at one level we're talking about how we keep the family together or how we keep sanity together, at another level you're saying this person will stand before God. And I will stand before God for how I handle this person who will stand before God. And so let me just, can I let you just for a moment feel the weightiness of this? Because I think that's what he's saying in this text. He's, he's saying, feel the weight of eternity so that you might respond willingly to those who take this calling seriously. So how do you do that? Let me walk through and just give you a couple of things. Number one, remember the precious worth of all souls to God. I say this to you because as we read the scriptures in the book of Acts and we reread what's going on here, one of the things that you and I need to understand in this text is that this driving force in ministry comes out of a, a higher view that God sees his sheep as precious. You ever babysat somebody else's kids? It's easier to babysit your kids. Than babysit somebody else's kids. Because, you know, your kid falls off the chair and bangs their head. You know, they recover and you cry together and you feel like a terrible parent. Somebody else's kid falls off, bangs the head, you feel like you're an ex murderer. Right? Where were you? What were you doing? This is a grand this is the grandparents. The great thing about being a grandparent is you get to give the kids back. The fearful thing about the grandparents is the kids won't let your kids the grandkids come back. <laughs> You know, because they remember what you were like as a parent. Can I look after the kids? Uh, Dad, remember when I was six and what you were like? You're disqualified. And you go, but you're going to do this. And as soon as you do this, come back and get me. (laughs) You know, but here's the serious weight of this. When you read the Bible, every soul is of precious worth to Jesus Christ. And when I look at you filing by here, taking communion, I never see, I never see just another person. So listen to Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul is making his way back to Jerusalem. He expects to be arrested and imprisoned. And as he stops at Ephesus where he spent some time with the leaders, he exhorts the overseers at Ephesus to take care of the flock. Listen to what he says in Acts 20, 26 to 29. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves. He's talking to the leaders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. I tell you the truth, after my departure... Wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. If you knew a predator was going to come after your children, would you be vigilant? This is what Paul says. There will be predators, spiritual predators, that will come after the souls of God's people. And I'm telling you, I'm going to Jerusalem. You be on guard. Jesus bought these people with his blood. Feel the weight of that. Now you understand when God came to Moses in the Old Testament and Moses said, here am I, choose Aaron. (laughs) Right? This is why Paul, when he lists in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he was whipped multiple times, he was beaten multiple times, he gives the list of all his persecutions. And at the end of that description, he says in verse 28, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. So for those of you who are anxious about parenting, there is a place where godly people in the Bible are anxious, Right? Paul talks about his anxiety for the churches. It's one thing to care for yourself. It's another thing to be responsible for the welfare in a world like this, for the eternal welfare of other people, churches, and Paul feels that. Let me give you a couple other ones quickly. Remember the passionate protectiveness over his people. And so here's one of the other things. God is incredibly protective over his people. You ever hear Jesus say it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and to be thrown into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble? James chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should be teachers, for you will be given a stricter account. Of all of these texts, Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus in no calm way, no uncertain terms, he goes after the Pharisees and the Sadducees saying what they do to the people. He said, you will make someone a disciple of yours and make them twice the son of hell. It's the language of Jesus. Not only will you go to hell, you'll take people to hell with you. He says, you'll tie up burdens on people's shoulders and you won't lift them up. There is no tolerance with God over the abuse of his children. There is a no tolerance policy with God over the spiritual welfare of his people. It is a frightening thing, isn't it? It's a weighty thing to hear him say, and I'm going to talk to you, Dibley, one day about your shepherding. And I say, here my choose somebody else. That's your inclination, as Paul said, who is sufficient for thee? But here's the other thing we have to remember. Remember the passionate protectiveness of God over his leaders. We've got a couple examples there in Numbers 14 and 1 Samuel chapter 8, where God comes. In Numbers 14, the people rebel against Moses. And they say, let's get another leader and go back to Egypt. And when God comes and speaks to the people as they rebel, because they don't want to go and face the giants in the land, when he calls them to go with Joshua and Caleb in the land, God comes along and says to Moses, okay, I've had enough of these people. Let me just destroy them all, and I'll make you a great nation. They're rejecting Moses. What does God actually say to Moses? He does the same thing in 1 Samuel chapter 8. When they come and ask Samuel for a king, in both texts he said, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. I've appointed you to be my voice, and they're rejecting you, or they're rejecting me not you and so that's the weightiness of this whole thing you know when we ask whether or not we're going to pray for and care for and encourage those that are gifted and called by God into leadership we have to understand for all of us this is a weighty thing because God is so concerned about the spiritual welfare of his people in the advance of the cause of Christ It's it's weighty it's weighty it's weighty and all of us have to feel the weight of that so we'll help each other and pray for each other and encourage each other in that finally let me just say in the Bible it says remember that seeing a leader's weaknesses are not justifications for dismissing their influence. And you read through the Corinthian letters and there's a group of superpower religious leaders who are going after the Apostle Paul and saying, you know what, he's not that good looking, he doesn't speak that well. I just resonate completely with that. (laughs) Right? He's not that good looking, he doesn't speak that well. All that kind of stuff, they're going after him. They're the super guys, they're the superpowers, they're the super preachers. And they're coming along, and Paul says, you know what? God gave me a thorn in my flesh and humbled me, and then he told me this. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will boast more in my weakness than in my strength, that God might be glorified. And so what, he, what he's saying here is we can't even dismiss God's design for the church, and we can't dismiss leaders because we can point out flaws. It's easy to point out flaws, Right? Isn't it easy to find fault with somebody? Just stick around. Just hang around. You, it's easy to idealize when you're not in the same room, not in the same relationship, not in conversation. But you stick around and you'll see all kinds of blemishes, you see all kinds of struggles. But that doesn't mean God isn't working, God isn't gifting, God isn't calling because we need to fight for each other to persevere to the end and to fulfill the call of God. So I'm just going to ask you this for a moment this morning. It's almost hard to do this in America. It's almost hard to encourage people to come to church to feel weighty. I don't go to church to feel weighty. I go to church to feel better about my life. Well, Your life's a mess. My life's a mess half the time. I want you to feel better, but you can't feel better until you realize how you're going to feel better. And the way to feel better is not to feel better about ourselves. The way to feel better is to feel better about God. When you see Jesus in his glory and what he's done for you, and you realize he loves you and accepts you and helps you, no one would serve God if they understood how deeply flawed they were and how marvelously holy except for God has accepted us in the beloved. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So the only way that we can begin to encourage one another, he says in this, is for us to feel the weight of the worth of the soul. People, pastors, elders, overseers, we have to feel it all. And then we have to encourage each other. Encourage each other to be faithful. So let me walk you through some of these. This is going to be real quick. So I'm going to give you this as a um, personal Bible study. How do you encourage each other, he says here? Look at verse, the end of verse 17. Let them do this with? What's the word? Joy, let them do this with joy and not with groaning because that'll be no advantage to you. No advantage for you to have a, a, a pastor who has no hope and no joy in his ministry, an overseer who's caring for you, somebody who's a leader, spiritual leader in your life who has no joy. So help them, so encourage their faithfulness in their ministry by encouraging their joyfulness in leadership. Everyone benefits from joyful ministry. Is that not true? Most important thing I do in preparing to pastor is to praise God, get rooted in Jesus, to get happy in the gospel, to believe what he's done for me, to trust in the hope of the gospel, and then to come and announce to you that if he saved me, like Paul says, he can save you. If he forgave me, he can forgive you. If he can transform and help me, he can transform you. So we're called to be intentional about lifting up the spirits of those who are called to lift up our spirits. So the, I think one of the best books of the Bible if you want to know how to have joy and how to help somebody else have joy, is Philippians. That's rejoice in the Lord always, you know, read it all the way through. Philippians is Paul writing to a church to thank them for encouraging while he was in prison. He actually acknowledges that when other people didn't help him, they did. When other people didn't even think to help Paul, they did. And he writes them, Extensively. This is the the letter where joy pops up, I think, more than any other word book in the New Testament. The word joy comes up. You want to have joy. You want to have joy. You want to give joy? You want to have joy at your in in your relationships as believers and with your leaders as believers? Read Philippians and ask the question. So let me walk through and show you what gives a leader joy. Number one, gospel partnership. Notice at the beginning, I thank my God in all my remembrance. Philippians 1-3. Always in every prayer of, of mind for you, always making prayer with what? Joy, because of what? Your partnership in the gospel for the first day until now. Can I just make this really simple and say this, that it's really important that we see we're in this together. That we don't hire or appoint leaders so we can do our own thing. Leaders don't do the ministry for us. Ephesians 4 says they equip us for the works of service. I get excited when, I go out of, when we leave at the end of the service, and I believe we're all going out on mission. We're all going out to disciple. We're all going out to serve, to be salt and light in the world. That's what excites me. If I feel like I'm a talking head and I've got to carry the whole burden, if I get into that disillusionment, I'll end up incredibly discouraged because I can't do it. But I'm not called to do it. So one of the things ought to be clear is that the language by which we interrelate with one another as Waterbrook Church, the language we talk about is that we are in ministry. It's our ministry. I'll tell you one of the things I listen to when I get newcomers to Waterbrook, and I'm thankful for those of you who are newcomers, but I I listen for a change in in just a simple change in words, language use. For a while, people will say... We like your church, or we don't like your church, right? You'll hear that your church language. But there's a profound moment when someone says, "I really like our church." You understand what's happening there? It's gone from observation to participation. But I. I'm not really even concerned to hear that in this context. What I want to hear is we are Waterbrook Church seeking to make disciples in Victoria into the ends of the earth. And we're going to do it. We are going to do that. That gives joy to any pastor, right? The joy of me is to hear, which I do. Thank God, I hear, I get texts every day, all week, from you. Every week, there's not probably, I don't think I get, don't have a day where I don't get multiple texts from our church family and often for prayer requests because of difficult situations and opportunities where people are going to work, going home, going to the community, trying to do the gospel. That's thrills, that gives joy, that this is what we're into. That's the first thing, Part, particip- partnership. Secondly, let's go to the next one, gospel unity. This is chapter two. There's nothing that makes a pastor happier than to see sinners loving each other, Right? So go to chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, what? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of the full accord in one mind. You know, it is easy in America to tweet other people's faults. Isn't it? And we're stating the obvious. So we say the president's crazy. And we say the people who don't like the president are crazy. We say California's crazy. And they say Washington, D.C. is crazy. And you go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I have an announcement. We're all crazy. But Jesus isn't. You know, the sanity and the hope is in the gospel, and when we come together and realize the glue that holds us together is not the perfection of our souls, but the perfection of our Savior. When we get that together, and we, have, what do we have in common? Do we have anything in common? Is there any encouragement in Christ? I hope you came to church today because there's encouragement in Christ. The answer to this is redundant, right? He's saying, is there any? Yes. Is there any? Yes. Then what do you do? Make my joy complete by what? we got enough going for each other in Jesus to get over what's separating us in Kevin, in one another. Does that make sense? Make Jesus the main thing and we'll all be drawn together. Make politics the main thing, sports the main thing, make something else the main thing, and my dear friends, we have no reason to be here on a Sunday morning or at any time together. So gospel unity brings joy. Third, gospel attitudes. Philippians chapter 2 later on. He doesn't use the word joy here, but he exhorts them. Do everything without what? Grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted world among whom you shine as lights in the world. You want to make a difference? You want to know how to share the gospel? Just stop complaining. Don't you believe that in this culture, if you stop complaining, you would look a lot different? People are going to ask you the question, why you're not so miserable like you used to be? Why you're not grumbling and complaining? So we would teach this to our kids. When our kids were little, I got this in my head. Do everything without complaining. Do everything without arguing so that you may become children of God, blameless and pure. Now, we did that so our kids would get along, and so our house would be changed. But we were doing this text of Scripture, putting it in their heads, so that when our kids went out into the world full of grumbling and complaining, people would ask them the reason for hope. We have hope. So that's the thing, gospel attitudes. The gospel changes your attitude because we have hope. Because we have Christ. Because we have love. How will they know you are Christians? By your love. Not your easy to get along agreement. I want Waterbrook to be the most eclectic, intergenerational, interracial church we could possibly be. So that the only explanation is, we, these people would never hang out except for one reason. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's, what, that's my prayer over this church. I want us to be the, the, the weirdest, eclectic group of people that exist in Victoria, Minnesota. Yeah, I, and we're. I want us to be even wider in inter- No, I don't want us to be weir- I don't want us to be weirder. You know what I mean? I just, I just want it to be that the thing that joins us together is Jesus. And the attitudes by which we talk to each other is not looking at each other thinking, how could you be so different? How could you be so dumb? How could you be so difficult? We look at each other and go, How do we help each other be more like Jesus? To believe Jesus, to follow Jesus. Let's go to the next one here, gospel appreciation. And so one of the things that the writer does, this Paul does, is he writes to the Philippian believers and he thanks them because they have invested. One of our goals at Waterbrook is to do global missions and in our mission strategy, as we're seeking to make a difference to the ends of the earth from here, one of our desires is to have what we're calling Barnabas groups, And Barnabas groups are a group of people within Waterbrook Church that take care of missionaries on the other side of the planet. And we invest in them and we make sure they're okay. And if we have to put somebody on a plane to go there to help them, we'll do that. If we need to bring them home in order to help them, that we would do that. That's one of the things we're praying and formulating. And that's what happened here. Philippians chapter 2, I am more eager to send Epaphroditus. They sent Epaphroditus to help Paul out in his imprisonment. He got sick and almost died. And he says, I'm eager to send Epaphroditus, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again, and I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all what? Joy "Joy, and honor such men. Kind of like we're doing this weekend and tomorrow. Honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of the Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What's being said there? You're going overseas? Paul's over in prison. You can't all come and help me. So they said, Epaphroditus, go help Paul. And they packed a suitcase and gave groceries and sent clothes and whatever they gave at that point in time. And he made his way, and he came alongside, and, he, they, and Epaphroditus ministered. And Epaphroditus almost died doing it. And so says, now Epaphroditus, go home because they're worried about you because they love you. They didn't send the last person. They sent their best person in order to do that. So doesn't that bring joy when you realize that people are caring for other people who are sacrificing for the gospel, sending people? It's when you know that people care about you and appreciate you. Let's go to the next one. This is the last one, gospel faithfulness. When God's people have eternal focus and priorities and aren't being sucked into earthly ambitions. He says at the end of Philippians chapter 3, I think there's another one, but in Philippians chapter 3 at the end, he grieves. He doesn't say joy here, but you know what grieves him? What grieves them is there's a whole bunch of people who have left living for the kingdom and are now just living for the world. And he says, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you with what? Tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. Now some of you have done funerals or attended funerals this last while it's hard to go to a funeral and all we talk about the f- are the fleeting things of this life isn't it and grieve your heart and you think man this world will work hard to waste your life this world will consume you with anxiety over money. It will consume you with paranoia about performance. This world will keep your clock ticking till the the day you die over things that are fading and passing. And what he says is that grieves any. Minister of the gospel. What encourages a minister of the gospel is when people get their priorities straight and they're not living for earthly things but they're living for eternity. That they get the main thing is the main thing. And there's so much wasted time, so much anxiety and stress, so much aging and angst over things that don't matter. Isn't that true? What gives us joy is when God's people make God's glory their goal. The gospel, their goal. I think I do have one more, last one. And kindness. This is one of the best ways to encourage somebody, just be kind. They're serving the Lord. Paul says in Philippians 4, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, look what he calls them in verse 10. What are they? They are my Joy and my crown. You got anybody in your life that's your joy? Stand firm in the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned but didn't have opportunity. Then he says, yet it was what? Kind of you to share, your tru- share my trouble. So let me just stop and say this. One of the best ways to bring joy to those who are in ministry, those who are serving, those who are encouraging you, is just figure out some way to be kind to them, to encourage them, to come inside. They they didn't know how to do it for a long time. They didn't have access to do it. But God opened up a window and they were ready and able to do that. Now hear me really carefully. This is not the pastor asking for a great deal of personal encouragement. You guys are very encouraging. What I am saying to you is we're in this together. And together we need to commit ourselves to take seriously the ministry of the gospel and to help each other towards the finish race. That's all of us together being conscious of the main thing, and that we, if we don't help each other, the world will wear each other down and the enemy will discourage and destroy us. We need encouragement. Now, what's the best way to encourage each other? I'll give you the last one. Right? As the going gets tough, the tough get down on their knees. Pray for each other. That's what he says in verse 18. Just pray all the more. Just pray for me. I don't know if, at least I texted you. I don't know if you got my little Spurgeon thing. You got to have a Spurgeon quote or a poem or something in a sermon. So here's my Spurgeon quote. No man can do a truer kindness in this world than to pray for me. So for a long time now at Waterbrook on Sunday mornings I have a little I have my own little rhythm on Sunday morning I get up real early I have my rhythm in terms of coming here and but I always am conscious that there are people praying and then I finally just decided I needed to sit in the middle of them while they're praying, not just know that they were praying for me. So every Sunday morning, I have people praying for me. But I know I get texts all week long for people praying for me. And I'm trying to pray for you. That's the thing. If you want to encourage somebody, get the throne of grace, the king of kings, the Jesus who's reigning at the right hand of the Father, who intercedes for us. Get him going with grace into people's lives. And if Jesus intervenes and Jesus shows up, and Jesus has been doing that for me, folks, I have had multiple scenarios, like last night, standing in this shop, and having an opportunity to share the gospel and encourage someone and point them to Jesus very clearly. But I've had multiple occasions in the last week where the Lord supernaturally intervened. I can tell you, Jim Jim will tell you, I was driving through Excelsior last week. I was going one way, and I felt the Spirit of God say, you need to turn around and go pray with Jim. So I turned my car around, and I went to my car and walked in, and Jim's sitting in a car in the shop with this guy. He looks through the window, and he starts laughing at me And then he looks at his guy and says, if you don't believe in a God. (laughs) And I'm sitting there thinking, I have no idea except for I'm supposed to come and pray for you. And Jim says, you were supposed to come and pray for me. Went in the office and prayed and then he went back out to the shop and worked. I've had multiple opportunities like that. Now I believe people are praying for me. God is real. God is acting. God is giving up to him. We've got to do that for each other. We're on mission. But my dear friends, the mission is hard. The cost is high. But Christ is worth it. And he's worthy. So let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's hard for any of us to stay focused. It's hard for any of us to stay hopeful. I try to imagine what it was like for a young 18 to 20-year-old man from Minnesota to be suddenly cut off from everyone, the enemy coming in and surrounding him and being taken into captivity. That young age and a family to not know And just that picture in my mind, dear God, of how many people find themselves alone trying to negotiate family life, trying to live for Jesus at college or university or high school, trying to work out a difficult marriage, trying to be faithful with a career and employees or employers, and having all this going on and being faithful and just feeling overwhelmed, dear God. I just try to think, dear God, what it would be like if we didn't have each other, those who never lost hope. Those who never stop seeking us. A word of prayer, a word of encouragement. All of us need grace. But here I bow and thank you that Jesus never leaves us or forsakes us. If there's someone here today that came in feeling absolutely abandoned and lonely. I pray, dear God, that they would receive grace and encouragement today. Help us to reach out. Help us to stretch out a hand. Help us, dear God, to give a word of grace. But help us to be the hands, feet, and especially the mouthpieces of Jesus. So we come and thank you, dear God, for your word. Help us to feel the weight and the worth, the joy of it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about our church times and events coming up, go to www.waterbrook.church.